0: We'll be reading this morning from Genesis chapter 33, Genesis chapter 33, hear the word of the Lord. Now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming, and with him were 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants, and he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maidservants came near, and they and their children, and they bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. Afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. Then Esau said, What do you mean by all this company which I met? And he said, These are to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand, inasmuch as I have seen your face, as though I had seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me. Please take my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. So he urged him and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us take our journey. Let us go, and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are weak, and the flocks and herds which are nursing are with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant. I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord in Seir. And Esau said, Now let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, and Jacob journeyed to Succoth, built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore the name of the place is called Succoth. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city. And he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for one hundred pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohi Israel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. In the classic Christian allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, crossing the river of Jordan represents death, passing from this life to the next. As a pilgrim enters the heavenly promised land, they must cross this river. And at the end of the first volume, Christian, that's the pilgrim, and and hopeful, his companion, must ford the river of Jordan. And after some difficulty, they finally reach the further shore, and they are greeted there by two angels, shining ones. And Bunyan writes, Wherefore, being come out of the river, they saluted them, saying, We are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those that shall be heirs of salvation. Thus they went along towards the gate. Now, you must note that the city stood upon a mighty hill, but the pilgrims went up that hill with ease because they had these two men to lead them up by the arms. Also, they had left their mortal garments behind them in the river, for though they went in with them, they came out without them. They therefore went up here with much agility and speed, though the foundation upon which the city was framed was higher than the clouds. They therefore went up through the regions of the air, sweetly talking as they went, being comforted because they safely got over the river and had such glorious companions to attend them. Bunyan tells a a compelling tale of the believer's journey to the celestial city, our eternal home. And he hits just the right note there at the end. Christians safely got over the river, the river of death and reached his inheritance in the city of God because God had sent angels to minister to him and conduct him safely home. Well, this morning as we examine Jacob's reunion with his brother Esau, my main point is this, that just as God brought Jacob safely back to the land of Canaan, so too he will bring all his people safely to their eternal inheritance. As far back as Genesis 12, we've seen that God had promised this land of Canaan to Abraham, and then that promise had been passed down to Isaac and now to Jacob. When Jacob was forced to leave the land, he had an encounter with God. He was camping one night. He had a vision of a ladder connecting earth and heaven. God was at the top of that ladder and spoke to Jacob. And so Jacob awoke and named that place Beth-El, the house of God. But what God spoke to him that night in his dream was a promise. Chapter 28, verses 13 and 14 read like this. I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth, You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south, and in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, there are actually three promises there made to Jacob, the promise of the land as an inheritance, the promise of a multitude of descendants, and of course, the promise of the Messiah the one in whom all the families of the earth would be blessed as he fulfills the promise that God made all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 of the, the seed of the woman who would defeat Satan. Jacob has received wonderful and astonishing promises from the Almighty God. The land was promised to be an inheritance to him and his descendants, but this promise was made to Jacob as he was leaving the land. He was leaving it under the threat of death. So this was a promise that was unrealized at the moment that it was made. It was set apart for a future fulfillment. But Jacob also received another promise from God that night. God promised Jacob that he would bring him safely back to the land. In verse 15, he said, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. In response to this promise, Jacob swore an oath and he said, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Jacob understood the promise of of God to be a promise of safekeeping. God would be present with him to guard and protect him in his sojourn and to bring him safely back to the land of promise, the, the land that had been promised to him as an inheritance, and that God would bring him back in peace. But that was in chapter 28. And this morning, we're in chapter 33. A lot has happened in those intervening chapters 20 years have passed. So I want us to consider this morning the difficulties that Jacob has faced, the trials that he has endured in those 20 years. When Jacob fled in haste from his brother's anger, Esau was threatening to kill Jacob. And the first trial that Jacob has to endure is not only his brother's anger, but the fact that he fled in such haste that he left the land empty-handed. He left with nothing. We saw that two weeks ago in Jacob's prayer at the beginning of chapter 32 when he said, I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two companies. He left empty-handed, but he returns with an exceeding amount of wealth and a large family. And Jacob consistently gives all the glory to God for these blessings in his life. We've seen that in the last several weeks, and it's again in our text this morning. When Esau asks about his family as they're reunited, in verse five, he lifted his eyes and he saw the women and the children, and and he said, who are these with you? Esau's asking Jacob about his family, and Jacob responds and says, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Jacob saw his family as a gracious gift from God, not the result of his own efforts, his own cunning, his own hard work, but a gracious gift from the Lord. And when Esau asks about the gifts that Jacob had sent him of sheep and goats and camels and cattle and donkeys, Jacob says in verse 11, please, Take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Jacob isn't wealthy because of his own efforts. He's not wealthy because of his own cunning, because of his own striving, but because of the grace of God alone. John Gill notes that indeed Jacob had, besides a large share of temporal mercies, all spiritual ones. God was his covenant Father. Christ was his Redeemer, the Spirit his Sanctifier. He had all grace bestowed on him and was an heir of glory. Jacob left the land with nothing but the staff he held in his hand, and he contributed nothing to his current state of blessing. It was all God's doing. Jacob's second difficulty that he faced was his uncle Laban. Laban's envy and his worldly influence. Jacob spent 20 years in Laban's household serving this man, a man who, as we have seen, was given to greed, to not acting with integrity. At the end of that 20 years, Jacob had an immense wealth in herds and flocks and servants and camels, and his uncle was not happy about it. Laban saw all that Jacob had as wealth and even his family and thought that it should have belonged to him. This was in spite of his dishonesty, his underhanded dealing, changing the, the terms of the contract with Jacob multiple times, trying to take advantage. Laban was a man of worldliness and greed. He was consumed with possessions and with power. Jacob spent 20 years under Laban's influence, in his household, under his authority. There was a very real danger here that Jacob would be influenced by his uncle's worldliness, especially given Jacob's own tendencies, which we have already seen, towards deception as he tricked his father out of the blessing. But as Gill noted, the Spirit of God worked to sanctify Jacob so that we saw as he left Laban's service, he was able to testify to his honesty and integrity over the course of those 20 years. Before entering his uncle's service, Jacob had entered God's service. He had vowed to serve God at Bethel that night as he left Canaan. And so God had watched over him, sanctified him, and taught him that as Jesus says in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Jacob learned to serve God, to see beyond the immediate and to look towards a heavenly reward. God had preserved him from Laban's worldly influence and then dramatically preserved him from Laban's vain attempt to take everything by force. Jacob's third difficulty was Rachel's barrenness. God had promised Jacob a multitude of descendants. He finds a woman that he loves. He serves 14 years for her hand in marriage, but she's barren. She can't have children. But by means of his uncle's trickery, Jacob had also married her sister. And Rachel's envy caused her to give Jacob her handmaiden. And so God multiplied Jacob's offspring dramatically. He left Canaan alone, leaving behind his father, his mother, his brother, all of his family. But he returned with two wives, two concubines, 11 sons, and at least one daughter. God multiplied Jacob's seed, even in that first generation, in a way that Jacob could never have imagined. And so Rachel's barrenness was overcome by the grace of God. And finally, Jacob's fourth difficulty was the threat of Esau. Jacob had left the land of Canaan 20 years earlier because his brother Esau wanted to kill him. It was said in chapter 27, so Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand, then I will kill my brother Jacob. Later verses go on to speak not only of Esau's hatred, but of his anger and even his fury towards Jacob. So Jacob had fled and he had spent 20 years in exile in Syria, serving his uncle. And as he returns to Canaan, he must face this threat, of his brother's hatred. It's lingering in his mind. He doesn't know what kind of reception he will receive from his brother Esau. And so in verse one, Jacob lifted his eyes and looked and there Esau was coming and with him were 400 men. So Jacob divided the children among Leah, Rachel and the two maidservants. Now Jacob had already divided his flocks and his herds into two companies. He had sent gifts on ahead to Esau And now he divides his immediate household into companies. The two maidservants in front with their children, then Leah with her children, and finally Rachel and Joseph in the rear. But Jacob, Jacob goes in front of them all. Verse 3, then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother Jacob put himself between his family and the potential danger, as any good husband and father would do. He humbles himself before his brother, bowing himself down. He doesn't run in fear of Esau. He trusts in the word of God and the promises that have been made, and he faces this difficult situation. Now, some 400 years later, Jacob's descendants have been In Egypt as slaves, and they have left Egypt. They served in Egypt for 400 years and grew and multiplied. By the time they left, 70 people went to Egypt. By the time they left, it's well over a million. They leave with vast wealth taken from the Egyptians, just as Jacob left Laban's service with vast wealth that God had taken from Laban and given to him but as the children of Israel draw near to the, the land of Canaan they come to the borders of Edom Esau's descendants and so they send messengers asking permission to cross through the land and they promise we'll stay on the road we won't even drink water out of the wells we won't disturb a thing just let us pass through the land but Edom refuses numbers 20:20 20, 20. then he said you shall not pass through So Edom came out against them with many men and with a strong hand. Now that generation of Israelites who experienced that is likely the first generation to read Moses' account of Jacob's return to the land of Canaan. And as they read of Esau coming to meet Jacob with a band of 400 men, they're probably thinking they know how this is going to end. They've just experienced it themselves from Esau's descendants but it doesn't end like we would expect it to. To our surprise, Esau's anger is gone. In verse four, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. This was not the ending that we were expecting. Jacob carefully approached his brother, bowing himself to the ground, but Esau abandons all dignity and runs to meet his brother falls on his neck, and weeps. Proverbs twenty-one-one says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. God has turned away Esau's anger, changed his heart. He has brought about a joyous reunion between these estranged brothers. Esau doesn't even want the gifts that Jacob sent him. He has become content with what he has. Jacob insists that he keep him, that he keep the gifts. Esau offers to travel with him or to leave some of his men, perhaps as a guard. Jacob declines. Now, some think that he declines because he's still suspicious and doesn't trust his brother, but I think it's also possible that he simply has learned to completely trust in the Lord's promise. And when he says that there is no need, he's speaking honestly. He doesn't need Esau's protection. He has the protection of the Almighty God. Notice that Jacob is careful of his children and his flocks, of their weakness, and as a gentle shepherd to bring them along at a pace they can handle in verse 13 and 14. But Jacob said to him, "'My Lord knows that the children are weak, "'and the flocks and herds which are nursing are with me. "'And if the men should drive them hard, "'one day all the flock will die.'" Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant, and I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord in see What a beautiful example of the sort of gentle shepherding that God himself has shown to Jacob. He has brought him gently along at a pace that he can endure until Jacob has learned to trust God fully. Now, by all accounts... Jacob was a good shepherd. He was good at what he did. But Christ is the good shepherd, as we have already read this morning. He is gentle and cares for his flock, and he has shepherded Jacob safely home to Canaan, just as he had promised. Now, Jacob stops briefly in Succoth. It's on the east side of the Jordan, so he's not yet crossed into the land. He pauses there for some time, perhaps to regroup his company as he had split them up. But then they cross over the Jordan and enter the promised land. And he travels straight west to Shechem. And verse 18 says, Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city. The word safely here is the adjective form of the verb shalom, which is usually translated into English as peace as it is in Genesis 28 verse 21. John Gill says this is an appellative that is to be rendered as safe and sound or whole. That's the idea of shalom in the Old Testament, wholeness, complete health, peace. Now, the Vulgate had translated it as a proper noun, and Luther had followed suit, as Kiel notes in his, dic- in his commentary, it is not a proper name, meaning to Shalim, as it is rendered by Luther following the Vulgate, but an adjective, safe, peaceful, equivalent to shalom, in peace, in Genesis 28, 21, to which there is an evident allusion. This was Jacob's response, if you'll remember, to God's promise at Bethel, Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, in shalom, then the Lord shall be my God. God has done it. He has brought Jacob safely back to the land of Canaan, whole, safe and sound, in peace against all odds and overcoming a number of difficulties. God has gently shepherded Jacob home to the land of Canaan, and this same God will shepherd all his people safely to their eternal inheritance. Now, before we get to God shepherding all his people, I want to point out the grounds for our confidence that God will act in this way for us, and that grounds is in Christ. Throughout Genesis, we've seen repeatedly that these events in the lives of the patriarchs serve two primary purposes. The first purpose, of course, is to preserve the chosen line through whom the Messiah or the Redeemer would be born. That's why God saves Noah. That's why he protects Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God rescues Jacob from Laban and turned away Esau's anger because... He had sovereignly chosen to work through Jacob's descendants to bring Christ into the world. But the second purpose that these events in the lives of the patriarchs serve is is not just to preserve the line that would bring forth Christ, but to actually point forward to Christ so as to give us a greater understanding and appreciation of our Savior. As we read in Colossians, these are shadows, Of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Jacob left his father's home. He left the land of promise. He went to a foreign land and worked as a servant in a hostile environment, and there he won for himself a bride. Christ likewise left his father's side and came as a servant in a hostile environment and one for himself, a bride, that is the church. God promised Jacob that he would be with him to keep him. Likewise, the father promised the son that he would be with him and keep him. Isaiah 42.6, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people and as a light to the Gentiles. Is the father promising the son the same kind of presence and protection that he promised Jacob in chapter 28? God also promised to bring Jacob safely back to the land of Canaan and to his father's house. And similarly, the father promised the son that after he had accomplished his mission of redemption, he would be brought safely back to the father's side. In his sermon at Pentecost, Peter quotes Psalm 16 and says that it is about. Christ for you will not leave my soul in Hades nor will you allow your holy one to see corruption you have made known to me the ways of life you will make me full of joy in your presence god had promised the son that he would bring him safely back to the father's side and just as jacob faced trials and hardships during his sojourn so christ faced hardship and suffering Throughout his incarnation, he lived in the midst of a world that was hostile towards him. He was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, but he did not sin. Isaiah wrote of him in chapter 53 He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him; surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows; yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted; but he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities; the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And we all we like sheep have gone astray; we have turned every one to his own way; and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken and they made his grave with the wicked but with the rich at his death because he had done no violence nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. He suffered condemnation that comes for a crime that he did not commit. Our sins were laid on him. He suffered the wrath of God poured out in full on the cross. He suffered the death that we deserved. And just as God kept his promise and safely brought Jacob back to Canaan, so too with Christ Isaiah continues there in chapter 53 and says, Yes, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. The power of God raised Christ up on the third day. Acts 5.31, Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So Christ received the promise and obtained his inheritance as the Prince of God, the Israel of God, as we saw last week. Now, the good news in all of this is that when we are joined to Christ by faith, we also obtain the promises of God, the promise of his presence with us, of safe keeping until we are brought home to our heavenly reward. Speaking of Christ's sacrifice of himself on the cross, the shedding of his righteous blood, Hebrews tells us, and for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Those who are called And who come to Christ, repenting of their sins and trusting in his finished work, have his righteousness applied to them and receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. Now, this is far better than the promise of a land that Jacob received. That was a temporal inheritance that Jacob himself never fully received. It was reserved for his descendants But the promise of an eternal inheritance is one that all believers receive. It is an inheritance that is laid up for us in heaven where moth and rust do not decay, where thieves do not break in and steal. We also have the promise of God to be with us. In John 14, Jesus prays. He tells his disciples that he is praying. He says, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Brothers and sisters, I want you to be encouraged today that no matter what trial or difficulty you may face in life, if you are a child of God, "'united to Christ by faith, "'then His Spirit dwells with you and in you. "'Therefore, we do not lose heart. "'Even though our outward man is perishing, "'yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. "'For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, "'is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. "'While we do not look at the things which are seen, "'but at the things which are not seen, "'for the things which are seen are temporary.' but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so we have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in us and with us to sustain us and keep us through the trials of this life. And we face the same sorts of trials that Jacob did. Jacob faced the trial of Rachel's barrenness. We face the trial of our own spiritual barrenness. Just as it was God who opened Rachel's womb and allowed her to conceive, so too we are fully dependent on God to bring life to our inner man. We are dead in our sins and trespasses, but God, by His Spirit, regenerates us, gives us a new heart. The Bible calls this being born again, and it is the Holy Spirit's work, not our own. Like Jacob, we must realize that we come empty-handed, We have no good in ourselves to bring, nothing to contribute to our salvation, except the sin that made it necessary, as the saying goes. We must depend solely on the grace of God. Our own righteousness is as filthy rags, the scriptures tell us. Every good work we have ever done is stained with sin, sinful thoughts, sinful motives, sinful actions. But by the grace of God and by his spirit at work in us, we are born again to new life. And then sanctified, made into the image of Christ so that we might do good works that are pleasing to the Lord. But this is only by his grace. We must admit, as Jacob did, that we come with nothing and that we are, as Jacob said, not worthy of the least of all the mercies and all the truth which you have shown your servant. Like Jacob, we face the temptations of worldliness, the temptation to the greed of Laban. We're surrounded by it, just as Jacob was for those 20 years he served his uncle. We live in the midst of a corrupt generation, Everywhere we turn, we are faced with the temptation to value the things of the world more highly than we ought. Love of money and possessions is a constant temptation. We're surrounded by advertising on TV, on the magazine racks, at the store, everywhere we are being told what money can buy and told that we need these things if we are to be truly happy, if we are to know fulfillment. And peace. The love of pleasure is pervasive throughout our society. Have you even tried to watch a modern television show? It's difficult to find one that isn't filled with images of sexuality or storylines that revolve around it. And the big one in our day, I believe, is a love of self. Our culture is obsessed with self love. Everywhere you turn, you'll hear about self-love, self-care, self-esteem, personal autonomy. Me, me, me. When I worked at the post office in North Carolina briefly, I heard this phrase over and over again in the back office as the workers would talk to each other. You do you. You ever heard this? You do you. It's the cry of our culture. You do what you want to do. You do what makes you happy. You do what brings you pleasure. You do what fulfills you. But the cry of the Christian is, he must increase, but I must decrease. The Christian lives to exalt Christ, not self. And like Jacob, it is only by the grace of God working sanctification in us that we're able to put our sin to death and be transformed into the likeness of Christ. Only by the Spirit of God can we learn integrity, humility, and the fear of the Lord, as Jacob did. We must learn to depend wholly on God. Jacob also faced hostility, both from Laban and Esau. And like him, we too face hostility from the world. Christ told us we would. He warned us. They hated him. They would hate us as well. But what did he tell us our response was to be to that hatred? Brian spoke about it in CLA this morning. Forgiveness, humility, love. We're told to love our neighbors, to love our enemies, and to love the brethren. We are to humble ourselves and to not think more highly than we should of ourselves. Jacob bowed himself to the ground before Esau. He humbled himself in the face of Esau's potential anger. Scriptures tell us that we are to endure persecutions and tribulations with patience and faith in 2 Thessalonians 1.4, that we are to endure hardship as good soldiers of Jesus Christ in 2 Timothy 2.3, that we are to endure reviling by blessing those who revile us in 1 Corinthians 4.12, and as the church, we are told to bear one another's burdens in Galatians six two, We are to persevere in prayer, as we saw last week. No matter what trial you are currently facing, know that you are not in this alone. If you are a believer, you have the Spirit of of the Almighty God dwelling with you and in you. And he has said, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. And as his child, you are part of his family, the church, the household of God. And so God has promised Jehovah, hear thee in the day when trouble he doth send, and let the name of Jacob's God thee from all ill defend. O oh, let him help send from above out of his sanctuary. From Zion, his own holy hill, let him give strength to thee. God works through means. That is, he works through his church. He has commanded us to bear one another's burdens. And so if you are a believer... God strengthens you and encourages you through the means of fellowship with other believers that we might continue to fight the good fight, to run with endurance the race that is set before us. And we do this with hope, hope of a safe homecoming, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with him. So I want to close by noting four things that we can hope for based on the promises of God. The first is that we can hope for a heavenly reward. Just as God promised to prosper Jacob, so too he has promised us not material prosperity in this life, but a great spiritual reward in the next. When we endure trial and persecution, Christ promised rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you Matthew 5:12 We're told in Colossians that whatever you do do it heartily as to the Lord not to men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Jesus Christ The reward is we're told in Matthew 19:29 eternal life the reward is the kingdom of God in 1 Corinthians 15.50. It is salvation in Hebrews 1.14. It is a blessing according to Peter in 1 Peter 3.9. And in Romans 8.32, we are told that we will inherit all things with Christ. Number two, just as God promised Jacob a large family, so he has promised us. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life, Matthew nineteen twenty nine. This is a promise that we will be part of the household of God. If you are a believer, this, this may estrange you from family members who are not Christians, this may cause a rift in your relationship with a son or a daughter or a mother or a father or a cousin or an uncle. But you have been promised that if you leave them behind for Christ's namesake, that you will become part of the household of God and receive a family that is a hundredfold larger. You become a part of the church of God spread throughout time and space This is your new family for all eternity. Thirdly, we are promised deliverance from evil. Just as God delivered Jacob from both Laban and Esau, he will also deliver us. We read in Galatians, our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, this is not a promise of deliverance from the trials of this life in this life. This is a promise of deliverance in the age to come. And when he says that he will deliver us from this present evil age, he means the corruptions and depravity of wickedness and the coming judgment that all men deserve. If we are his, we will not be given over to the evil of this age or suffer its fate with the unrighteous, but we will be delivered both from the corruption of the world and from the judgment that comes on the world. And finally, we have hope of eternal peace with God in the new creation. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Christ, we have shalom, peace with God, wholeness. Jacob came in peace to Canaan, just as God had promised. And we can be confident that we will come in peace to our eternal home, to our everlasting inheritance, because God has promised. Jesus says in John six forty, and this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. This is the will of God and the promise of the Savior that all those who believe he will raise up at the last day. Just as God brought Jacob safely home to the land of Canaan, so he will bring all his people safely to their eternal inheritance. Last week, we saw an exhortation to perseverance. What gracious, gentle shepherding of God to so order the life of Jacob and record it in the scriptures for us that after we have been exhorted to persevere in prayer and through personal pain and trial, the next passage we read gives us encouragement in hope of a safe homecoming to the promised land of God's eternal kingdom because the good shepherd is tending our souls. Let's pray.